I V M. Before you listen to this episode of the Seen and the Unseen, I have a recommendation for you. Do check out Pulya Bazi, hosted by Saurabh Chandra and Pranay Kotesane, two really good friends of mine. Kickass podcast in Hindi. It's amazing. Economics is often called the dismal science, and indeed, most people find it very boring. GDP, inflation, fiscal deficit, this policy, that policy. Who gives a damn? Even when it comes to something like the union budget, which gets so much media coverage, people look for one-line takeaways that tell a simple story, or just look to see what's in it for them. The remaining numbers are meaningless. Now, I object to this attitude. It should not be this way. The economic policies of our governments impact the lives of millions of people, can even destroy the lives of millions of people, and have moral significance for that reason. I always say, for example, that some of Indira Gandhi's economic policies kept millions of people in poverty for decades longer than would otherwise have happened, and for that reason, deserve to be termed crimes on humanity. More recently, Narendra Modi's demonetization, which I repeatedly refer to as the largest assault on property rights in human history, was a similar humanitarian disaster in terms of the suffering it caused. Leave alone the actual deaths. And all of these horrible economic policies are implemented using force through the one entity that has a legitimate monopoly on violence, the state. India is a democracy, of course, and the state is supposed to be subservient to the wishes of the people. And that makes it imperative that all of us common citizens pay more attention to economics. Economics matters. Public policy matters. They affect our lives in a million ways. that go unseen Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen our weekly podcast on economics politics and behavioral science please welcome your host Amit Varma Welcome to the Seen and the Unseen in the last few episodes i've taken deep dives into history and philosophy discussing books by the likes of Ram Guha Tyler Cowen Steven Pinker Gyan Prakash Matt Ridley and Manu Pillai i even had an episode on cricket with Harsha Bhogle But no matter where I go, I'll always come back to economics because hey, it's bloody important. Starting today, I'm going to have an episode every few weeks that is an economics ramble. I'll just ask a couple of economist friends to drop in, and we'll chat about the economic landscape around us and try to illuminate more unseen effects of the policies of our overlords. My guests today are both good friends of mine who have appeared on the show, and I hope they'll remain regular guests as time goes by. Vivek Kaul is India's most prolific economics journalist. He writes an average of 33.2 pieces every week for various publications in India. He's also written four books: The Easy Money Trilogy and India's Big Government. You can buy them all on Amazon. My second guest today is my good friend Kumar Anand, with whom I have had more cups of coffee than any other person alive. So when I die of liver failure, you know who to blame. Kumar is an economist who currently works with Nayi Disha, and he also put together the Indian Liberals Project. Before I begin my conversation with Vivek and Kumar, though, let's take a quick commercial break. Like me, are you someone who loves fine art but can't really afford to have paintings by the artists you like hanging on your walls? Well, worry no more. Head on over to IndianColors.com. Indian Colors is a company that licenses images of the finest modern art from some of the best artists in India and adapts them into objects of everyday use. These include wearable art like stoles and shrugs, home decor like cushion covers and table runners, and accessories like tote bags. This allows art lovers to actually get fine art into their homes at an accessible price, and artists get royalties on sales just like authors do. What's more, Indian Colors now has an exciting range of new products including fridge magnets with some stunning motifs and salad bowls and platters made of mango wood. Their artists include luminaries like Babu Xavier, Vasvo Xvasvo, Brinda Miller, Dilip Sharma, Shruti Nelson and Pradeep Mishra. They accept bulk orders for corporate and festival gifting, but even if you want to buy just for yourself or a friend, head on over to indiancolors.com. That's colors with an o u. And if you want a 20% discount apply the code IVM20. That's IVM for IVM podcast. IVM20 for a 20% discount at indiancolors.com. Kumar and Vivek, welcome to the scene in the unseen. Thank you. Thank you, man. So uh, Vivek, you kind of got here a little late because you were stuck in Bombay traffic and uh, for that reason you haven't heard what I said about you in the introduction. Uh, you'll hear that when the episode comes out uh, and for that reason also we won't have a particularly long episode today maybe an hour or so and we won't go into some of the reader questions that we um, 
asked people to submit on Twitter. Those are for next time. This is going to be a regular feature. Hopefully, you guys will kind of uh, keep returning. But that's enough of me rambling, and uh, let's get to the economics ramble part of it. Um, Vivek, the uh, we are recording this on Feb seventh, and the union budget was just out last week. What were your views on it? I know you've written some eighty-three pieces on it already. No, no, I just wrote around eight. Not just eight? Are you serious? Yeah, I wrote eight, but that's not. I mean, I'd written eleven a couple of years back. This year, I didn't write as many. So before we get to that, do you repeat yourself in these eight pieces, or do you uh, find different uh, things yeah, to say? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course, it can't be. Yeah. So it's see, in an interim budget, uh, it would be difficult to write eight uh, new pieces, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a fresh, in a you know, in a in a normal budget, you know, ten eleven pieces is pretty okay. There's nothing great about it. You can easily write ten eleven so new pieces. B- before we go back to the question, just to sort of digress, all the listeners obviously know that uh, Vivek Call is the most prolific uh, writer out there, and you're writing some fifty pieces a week or whatever it is. What's your work ethic like? How do you manage to write so many pieces? And no, so see what happens is uh, no. So I don't write fifty pieces a week. So in a, in a good week, I write. Uh, around uh, probably ten to eleven pieces. In a bad week, I write around five to six. So, so basically, Kumar oh, and I are suppressing our laughter. Like yeah. ten pieces, to kuch bhi nahi hai, koi bhi likh sakta. So, no, so, so what you said in the intro. So, so <laughs> yeah. basically, see, uh, it's 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 uh, what happens is in many pieces. Like, I wrote three pieces for Equity Master this week on the budget, and uh, they were all. So basically, I wrote one piece on how you know the fiscal deficit should not be taken seriously. Then I wrote another piece. Uh, while writing that piece, there, you know, there was a second idea on uh, how FCI, Food Corporation of India, is used to sort of manipulate uh, fiscal deficit numbers. And uh, then I wrote another piece on how FCI is used during election years to sort of, uh, you know, benefit the political party which is in power. So if you look at the core idea at the, you know, heart of these three pieces, it was basically the same. But given that, uh, you know. Uh, you know, if I had figured everything out at the very beginning of writing the first piece, uh, I would have written only one piece. But what happened was, you know, when writing the first piece, I figured out the second one, and when I wrote the second one, I figured out. So the it's third like a one. Chinese box of rabbit holes. So you, you keep say, the economy. When you write on the economy, there are so many things that you know. One thing leads to the, you know, leads to another. And if you are curious enough, I don't think writing six, seven pieces is a big deal because see, ultimately it it takes around what. Two hours to write a thousand word piece, not more than that. So, on that, uh, and given that a lot of it is basically you're building on something that you've already written, uh, so you're essentially it's all there in your head. You're just you know rewriting. Like if you were to ask me to write on the fiscal deficit, so three hundred, the basic three hundred words on what is fiscal deficit, why is it important? I mean, all that is already there. So you're not like reinventing the wheel in the Strictest sense of the term. So basically, most columns that one writes are not written from scratch. Fair enough. So let's let's it's talk about uh, let's shift attention from uh, yourself to the budget, uh, which was. Ah, so I I just thought you know it was an out and out uh, uh, election budget. Mm. I mean, like interim budgets tend to be, and um, what was uh, you know disappointing was the fact that. Uh, some good schemes were launched without, uh, you know, any preparation. So, to take the biggest uh, thing in the budget, which was PM Kisan, uh, essentially an income support scheme for farmers, uh, small and marginal farmers with uh, land holding of uh, around two hectares, uh, which is nearly five acres. So, uh, now, you know, the, the basic problem here is that the government wants to uh, give them 6,000 rupees per year. Two thousand rupees in three installments, and uh, in order to ensure that they do it before elections, the scheme has uh, essentially been initiated, you know, from uh, with a retrospective effect of uh, from uh, December first. So basically, by March thirty first, before March thirty first, the first installment of two thousand rupees should have reached uh, these farmers. Now the problem is, how will you identify these farmers? I mean, who are these farmers who have? you know, two hectares or less, or households, farming households, basically. Now, uh, for that, you need uh, digital land records, uh, which are not available through the length and breadth of the country. You know, a state like Karnataka uh, has land records, but a state like Bihar, which actually needs this support, you know, there is nothing there. So, uh, or even Uttar Pradesh. So, you know, these are the states which actually need uh, 
you know need need the support the second thing as a lot of people have pointed out is that uh, uh, many of these uh, people who own this land are no longer farmers you know i mean they are probably living in cities and it's someone else who's farming on their behalf so what what happens to them then there is the other the there is a pension scheme uh, which has been launched for uh, people in the informal sector again but let's go back to the handout to farmers i mean which uh, comes to really 500 bucks a month for each of them over right. a year which uh, isn't much at all uh, so uh, uh, e- even assuming implementation could be perfect you could identify all the farmers and actually give them that money mm-hmm. do you really think it would make much of a difference i mean see it will not make it will make some difference you know for so you know again to sort of uh, if you look at the income inequality that prevails through the length and breadth of india uh, now in a state like bihar which has a per capita income of around 38000 a 6000 rupee uh, payment per month will definitely make a lot of difference do you think it will make a difference in bihar maybe not in kerala bihar ha uh, but not but kerala also has a lot of uh, mm. you know marginal farmers because if you look at plot sizes in kerala agriculture plot sizes they're very very small in fact they're smaller than that uh, those in bihar so bihar i think the average plot size is around 0.5 0.51 hectares in kerala it's around 0.3 0.33 something like and that and just off the top of your head then what would you, what would you say are the chances that something like this can be implemented so all these poor farmers in bihar actually so, get so which money. is see that's the irony of the you know whole situation you know states which have better land records actually do not need these schemes as much as states which do not have land records so you know in a night in an ideal world this should have been done in may 2000 july 2014 when the first budget was presented and the next two years or whatever time it would have taken should have been spent in building these records in building these database like the government went around uh, you know uh, building the aadhar database or uh, opening jandhan accounts this should also have been done on a similar war footing then uh, you know it would have made it would have made some difference except now when they are desperate for votes and right. and, buy them and i don't what, see how it's going to be implemented in a period of less than 2 months kumar what are your sort of views on handouts like just go back to the question you uh, the secondary question that you had asked mm-hmm. uh, related to the income support which is will 500 rupees per month on the average will make a difference i think it will make a big difference a huge difference because the money in your pocket that you receive from the government or when you earn always makes a difference to you on the margin so for someone who does not have anything 500 or 2000 rupees on the margin is a it could be a big big amount you know so imagine if you don't have anything those first 100 rupees is what will get you your lunch or breakfast you know not uh, on the margin so correct can i just interrupt yeah. so you know again just to take his point forward now bihar the per capita income is 38000 39000 so per capita is essentially the mean that we are talking about the median income would be even lower so the income of an average bihari would be much lower than the per capita income in the state right so let's say someone who's making 20000 rupees a year or 15000 rupees a year i mean 6000 rupees is a huge it make a huge amount of difference so it it just depends on which part of uh, yeah, and there are large parts of india where it, this is needed yeah so. and what government is estimating i think is about 12 crore families it will cover so which is about half of the households entire household that about 25 crore families in the country so Fifty uh, percent of the households will get covered. So, to me, it looks like a big scheme. Well, implement whether it will get implemented, whether everyone will receive the money is a different question altogether. So, I'm not very hopeful about that. So, before we go back to the budget, this is actually a good time to sort of take a diversion for a moment and talk about uh, the Congress's promise of the minimum uh, uh, guaranteed income for the poor. Yeah. Uh, because that again appears to be a similar way of. Uh, Uh, not actually caring about fixing structural problems but here here's a handout and we'll we'll bribe you and get right, your votes and right. and whatever and uh, kumar i know i know you wrote a very long essay recently for a french publication on the ubi and this of course is not the ubi yeah. but can you share some of your insights from that and therefore what you think about this yeah so uh, i think people who are policy wonks have started describing uh, these programs as qubi quasi universal basic income mm. so both congress's proposal a week before the budget came out and now the bjp's proposal the congress proposal i would tend i would say on the margin is worse than bjp proposal because what they are saying is that they will identify a poverty line and anyone falling short of that they will provide the bridge so suppose if i have said that 1 lakh rupees is the per, per annum you know income is the one where uh, everyone should get if you are falling short by 50000 i'll give you 50000 if you are falling short by 80000 i'll give you 80000 
Now, what that means, the guy who is deciding how much money you are falling short of tremendous discretion, uh, tremendous discretion. So, yeah. uh, in fact, the next job that I will be looking for is that if I can be the person who decide how much you are making and uh, you know, therefore, therefore, the bridge. Uh, I mean, the system uh, uh, can be so hard. Yeah. yeah. So, um, of course, and in all of, all of this, the big challenge is the fiscal constraint. So, uh, once you start on this road, uh, a, a country which is developed with a per capita income of forty, fifty thousand US dollars can think about uh, doing it. As part of the research, when I was doing on Q, uh, UBI, I, real, I, I learned that uh, Hillary Clinton very seriously considered doing UBI, uh, running on the camp, on the platform of UBI, and abandoned it because it did not. The numbers didn't add up. They certainly don't add up for India. And once you start uh, every budget, you will. S- see more and more you know promises entries in terms of numbers my largest sort of philosophical question is there's always going to be a trade off between growth and redistribution do you grow the pie or do you redistribute parts of it and that is a trade off which when a poor country like india whose first imperative is to remove poverty uh, i'm not sure if that's uh, sort of a, a trade off we can afford to make on the side of redistribution we need to grow wealth first and uh, exactly. what 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 are your sort of feelings on on, on the, the broad this philosophical outlook that we will do handouts and yeah. we will uh, bribe voters the yeah. best we can to get their votes and ultimately nothing really changes a poor remain poor exactly so uh, this brings me back to the the budget speech which I was reading and i have read it carefully uh, each of the sentences what one thing that stood out for me uh, more than the income support for the farmers or the you know pension scheme for the unorganized uh, sector laborers is 143 crore led bulbs were distributed by the government subsidized or in some form or the other that means 1.1 bulb for 130 crore indians i never received that bulb you know no, and but even that hardly means anything yeah, I mean, the, but these the bulbs of, were available if you wanted to it's not a point of the yeah. amount of money it's also a point yeah, of the, your mindset that, yeah that's the point it. i'm trying to make is yeah. that uh, and once you start it just you know kind of a a, a bulb sort of uh, went in my own head and you started reading uh, some so of the you other paragraphs yeah so, yeah yeah in some ways uh, so once you start reading all the other sentences you realize that how a lot more attention has been given to the provision of private goods which you would assume that people would take care for on their own will provide you know work for it or uh, you know whatever and uh, provide for themselves and the things that the government should be doing you know are public goods national defense law and order etc you know um, making sure that contracts are enforced etc uh, those are the job of the government and they will do it the budget is entirely it looks to me is uh, focused on provision of private goods some of the things that are led bulbs of course Uh, 6 crore lpg cylinders you assume that is a classic case of a private good building houses uh, building toilets as part of uh, you know uh, swachh bharat mission which you would assume that if you really want to take care of sanitation and cleanliness the way to fix it would be rather look at the root cause of it whether it's property rights or devolution of power to the local governments but rather than running a national mission on it electricity connection and of course food grain etc so look at it it looks like you are engaged more and more increasing uh, every every year Uh, in the provision of private goods, uh, the budget looks like uh, to me that, and which uh, brings t- to your point, which is again the classic case of redistribution. You know, so almost all of this is financed by taxes, one way or the other, whether it's inflation tax, uh, uh, deficit financing, or through you know uh, just uh, tax revenues which are collected. I mean, I I wrote a piece about this in the Times of India uh, this Sunday, so where I repeated a limerick I once wrote for the Times of India, which I'll repeat here, which is the limerick is called politics, and this is how it goes. A neta who loves currency notes told me what his line of work denotes. It is kind of funny. We steal people's money and use some of it to buy their votes. Uh, stop quote. And and my contention in that column was that uh, in India, all good politics will ultimately be bad economics because that is what uh, sells and gets you votes. Do you agree with that, Vivek? Why specific to India? Sorry, uh, would you say that is true for all countries? Only particular to India? That's a good question. What do you think? Yeah, the nature of politics. I think we wrote a piece on politics is equal to bribery uh, some time ago, looking yeah. through public choice lines. I think that would be true for all countries, uh, and not all democracies. All, all democracies, yeah, yeah competitive democracy. It, yeah. it is rational for voters to remain ignorant about economics, and yes, therefore of course, they will. Of course. Uh, and 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 voters tend to think in zero sum ways, mm-hmm. and therefore uh, you know handouts are attractive to them, and they're not really. Yeah, short term, the scene, uh, yeah. the unseen is far away, and you. Vivek is twitching. No, no. What basically. you know i don't complicate things as much as anand did my my take is very simple uh, see basically narendra modi the way i look at him uh, you know he is uh, uh, essentially a narrative builder sure. okay, you know people call him a nation builder but he's basically a narrative builder 
and he uh, has been losing track of the narrative over the last four five months. I mean, there is no denying that. I mean, uh, you may one may not like Rahul Gandhi, but he's come back uh, you know, forcefully over the last few months. So this speech uh, by Piyush Goel, and uh, to his credit, uh, he did a much better job than Arun Jaitley possibly would have. Uh, was essentially a attempt to uh, get control of the narrative again, right? And which is why he sort of went back, you know, went to, you know, if you look at the speech, it's essentially a summary of what Modi uh, has supposedly done. Uh, How he projects himself. Uh-huh. I mean, it's just that there's nothing more to it. You know, he's talked about all, you know, all the talking points are there. Beyond that, it has talking points which Modi can go and sell to the audience. In the next uh, three to four months, which uh, not four months, but two to three months, which he will definitely be on the road and uh, will be communicating with the people of uh, the country directly. So it has given him these talking points. You know, you have the um, income scheme, then you have uh, the uh, the pension scheme, and uh, and everything else that he is supposedly uh, done. So I think it was uh, nothing more than uh, it is good politics. I mean, it was nothing more than an you know an, a good uh, pre-election speech, which uh, the finance minister did a commendable job of uh, uh, you know executing. So you know, even look at I'll give you a very simple example. Now let's uh, you know he talked about how the defense budget for the first time was uh, crossing three lakh crore, and everybody clapped. But then, what was the defense budget up up until now? You know, I mean, it, it, and if you look at the numbers, the increase is just you know a couple of percentage points, uh, which is lesser than the uh, prevailing rate of uh, inflation. inflation, right? Where is this money going to? A lot of this money in the so-called defense budget now goes towards salaries and pensions. It is not going towards uh, you know what is. You know, actually, in fact, most of our weapons—I forget the figure—but it's more than ninety percent. Most of the weapons the Indian Army has are hopeless, are outdated by decades. So you know, so if if you look at how the entire uh, speech was structured, it was essentially structured to catch attention of people. It was structured to help the media. You know, if you look at uh, newspapers these days, uh, they are uh, there are special editions designed for the budget. And if you look at those pages very carefully, there are boxes which you know, in which point bullet points have to be filled. So these, this was basically uh, you know the speech was very very uh, bullet point uh, driven, so that you know the media could you know catch on to these bullet points easily and repeat it you know during the course of the day or uh, the next morning. The the other point is you know in an interim budget you don't make you know big changes like this you know like uh, the income support scheme but the uh, the the uh, BJP did it and in fact I was on TV on the budget day and and uh, the the BJP spokesperson uh, in fact two BJP spokespersons at different uh, points of time uh, justified it by saying but the Congress did this in 2014 and did this in 2009. And you know there is a line which I like to sort of repeat, and it's it's a line from the movie uh, Divar, which is like "Auro ke paap ginane se apne paap kam nahi ho jate." So you know, which is two wrongs don't make a right. Bollywood's articulation of what about it? Yes. So you know, two wrongs don't make a right. So essentially, this was an out and out uh, election uh, speech, election budget designed to help Narendra Modi and the other BJP leaders to. Uh, sort of get talking points which they can pick up and go talk about at you know various points. In fact, if you watch TV on the budget day, uh, you would realize that all BGP spokespersons were basically saying the same thing. They were not answering the questions. They were, they had these three four points which they were just going and building the narrative. Yes, so it was essentially nothing more. Uh, you know, just uh, another exercise in narrative building. Also to sort of, uh, you know, the limerick uh, you sort of uh, talked about, uh, you know, politics. Uh, there is a very nice line. Uh, there, there was a Shah Rukh Khan uh, movie many years back called Oh Darling Yeh India. So there is a very nice song in that uh, movie. And I mean, I don't remember the song, but there's a nice line in that mo- uh, in that song, which goes, Jo bacha nahi wo baat diya. You know, Oh Darling Yeh India. So what we haven't even saved, we have already... 
distributed or at least uh, at least planned to so yeah uh, there's another point i wanted to make so uh, so the congress you know minimum income guarantee scheme big 19 you know which tend you know makes it yeah i don't know yaar my someone else would have also but i used it in a piece uh, in the mint so i don't know if someone so it is your term like pakoranomics to mm-hmm. yeah, listeners of, of my show know this pakoranomics is your term yeah. well done so mig 19 uh, i think you know i look at it in a slightly different way in the sense that and i mean i'm not just talking about the congress scheme but the entire scheme uh, in any income support scheme i mean i think it's i mean i wouldn't have said this a few years back but now i think having looked at uh, you know enough data and enough indian economies i think it's it's necessary because uh, you have parts of india which will never catch up with other parts of india you know if even if bihar grows at 11% uh, i mean it will if karnataka stops growing today bihar will probably get there in another 15 years so it is not fair you know whatever if you know india is a nation you know attempts have to be made uh, to help parts of the country which are not growing at an adequate speed and which have been left back i think i think so, the larger point there is that uh, you are right that in states like bihar and all people are in poverty it's our moral imperative to get them out of that and that's completely right but whether they catch up with karnataka or not is not an issue the, the, no but my point yeah. is it's the the divide is just I wouldn't be too big. I wouldn't look at the divide. I would just look at the absolute numbers. And you're right; the absolute numbers are abysmal. But uh, to talk about it in terms of the divide is completely pointless. That's a wrong metric. I'd rather talk about poverty than inequality because the two are very different. And India's problem is poverty. I mean, at one level, yes. Uh, so uh, no. So what the point I was making uh, was that now, obviously, you know, you need a lot of money to do it. Right now. the congress uh, minimum income guarantee scheme even though very you know the details available are very sketchy but from from the way they've been talking it would definitely cost more than 75000 crore okay obviously there are problems with the scheme as to how do you identify uh, you know i mean let's say if the cut off is 50000 points how do you figure out you know the person eligible uh, is making that kind of money especially in the informal sector where payments are in cash and also payments tend to vary uh, it's not like you get the same yeah. amount of money every day or every week so how do you figure all that out you know yeah. so it's easy if all the money is coming into a bank account and then you can you know do some 180 day average or some something like that but having said that you know i think it's it's also one if the country were to look at a bigger uh, income support scheme i think it's sort of makes sense because and you know we obviously have to fund it uh, properly because that bill there would run into lakhs of you know it would easily run into 9 10 11 lakh crore now so how do you fund something like that and if you know in order to fund something like that the only way is to for the government is to sell all the assets that it has been sitting on what mr anand's current employer mr jain's been talking uh, for a while so i think it's a reasonably good idea but obviously it will not happen because no politician worth his salt uh, will do anything like that so it if someone were to do it and do it properly it would be an excellent way of curtailing you know india's big government which is in places uh, which it shouldn't be i mean the government should basically be concentrating on five six basic things defense external affairs Uh, railways roads as you keep saying a, a strong and limited government instead of a weak but uh, you know, vastly spread out all over the place but this is again a utopia it's a utopian dream it's not going to happen and what will essentially happen is we'll have all these half baked uh, income support schemes which will uh, operate on top of all the schemes that we already have now you know this, this is a point i made in my mint article so basically what you know pravin chakravarty has been saying is that uh, you know they'll be rational about uh, the entire thing so obviously it means that you know they'll look at new ways of raising taxes and they'll also look at ways of cutting down on uh, current expenditure now if you look at current expenditure you will have to cut down on things like food subsidies okay now it's easy to talk about cutting down food subsidies but the moment you start getting into it there are too many problems that crop up now the first thing that will happen is that you know how is food subsidy offered uh, it is offered through food corporation of india which buys rice and wheat directly from farmers 
at a minimum support price which the government announces this is then distributed through the public distribution system at a very low price to meet the uh, needs of the national food security act and uh, other you know welfare measures of the government the government then compensates uh, the food corporation of india for this subsidy that it uh, offers and now if the food subsidy were to be cut down then you know by its very definition fci would also have to cut down on uh, uh, procuring uh, you know rice and wheat that it does uh if it procures less uh, then what happens to all the you know infrastructure that it has built what happens to the public distribution system uh, that is in place so these are not easy not you know there are too many feasible. entrenched uh, and and there are states where the a uh, public distribution system actually works pretty well what about those states i mean so why you know i mean there will definitely be uh, protests also you know the i think the two pilots which have happened uh, for distributing uh, cash instead of uh, food uh, uh, happened in pondicherry and chandigarh and i don't think they have uh, you know received uh they've been very successful because the system that is uh, you know is currently there is so well entrenched that they basically managed to pull down the experiments so kumar let me cut to you here um since uh, our friend brought you into the conversation himself yeah. so you work Thanks for the plug vivek yeah so you work for nai disha which is yeah. uh, started by rajesh jain and i did an episode with rajesh a long time back where course, he explained his uh, the essential dhanwapsi yes. idea now the thing what what i have always thought about such handouts is that uh, they are and ultimately the ubi is at a was level just extremely unfeasible the numbers don't uh right. work and there are uh, ethical issues with them as well for the large scale coercion that they involve but uh, your uh, point what you guys uh, say in dhanwapsi is that this you don't need to redistribute to have a ubi that you can have a ubi feasibly if you just look at all the unused property that the government sits on which is technically the property of the people and it has no business being lying idle when it's not being used by the exactly. state so the state should sell it and uh, use that money for the welfare of the people to whom it belongs right. uh, tell Absolutely. me a little bit more about that briefly the point is here is uh, i'll go a little bit back in the history uh, so since independence we pursued the planning uh, the central planning model and the five year plan and what we did uh, that to do the soviet model planning the big difference between soviet union and india of course is that india was a democracy while soviet union was not we had private property as a fundamental right you know property rights as a fundamental right but they did not uh, every resource there belonged to the state so to pursue planning you the only way you could do those planning if resources are available to you so over a period of time this indian state has continued to accumulate more and more resources so you'll remember the recent piece that i did for pragati with my colleague reshu which is about how the number of cpscs has grown over the years in 5051 it was 5 in 2013 14 when uh, the current government came to power it was 290 and uh, as of 31st march 2018 the number stood at 339 so they have added more than about one cpsc every month that they have been in power so the state has continued to amass more and more resources uh, in case of cpscs land minerals etc so you nationalized uh, all that 70% of the banking business is not accounted for here so if you uh, you know take all that into account then the ballpark figure that we have is that at the rate of 1 lakh rupees per indian household you'll be able to finance the return of this wealth i remember i'm calling it return of wealth so if it's called that term then wapsi uh, and not an universal basic income which is financed out of taxes or uh, some sort of redistribution it is redistribution a uh, sort of but taking away from the state itself which over many many years has continued to amass and currently which is lying either unused and uh, what's still misused or abused so you monetize it put them into a fund which is different from consolidated funds of india and use that fund only for the purpose of returning it back to people you know no other purpose so it's not uh, used for uh, government's current consumption purposes but money directly hands so we call it the right way of doing ubi uh, just to get into the conversation uh, on ubi because uh, people are talking about it and uh, as we discussed earlier that how india absolutely does not have the fiscal bandwidth so what, this is one way that you can do it so the, all the resources which are lying idle but uh, as vivek rightly said you know uh, politically it looks uh, quite improbable but at the same time if enough people talk about it uh, and if people start looking at it and demanding it then i don't think it will be you know an impossible thing anymore 
On that incredibly hopeful note, let's take a commercial break. Hello, everybody. It's been another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. Please follow us on social media if you aren't. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On Cyrus says, Cyrus talks to comedian Neville Shah about going to the same school as Freddie Mercury and how difficulties in life make for great comedic material. On Pesa Vesa, Anupam is joined by the very first guest he had on his podcast. Mavi Chopra is the Director of Health, Life and Strategic Initiatives at CoverFox. They talk about new online ULIPs and why they're worth your investment. On How to Citizen, Meghnath and Shreya speak to comedian Abbas Mohamed, that's our very own Abbas, about understanding laws. They try to understand our free speech laws and what exactly is dissent. On the Filter Coffee podcast, animal activist Anand Siva joins Karthik Nagarajan to talk about animal cruelty and environmental conservation. On Geek Fruit, Tejas and Zinkar are joined by producer Janam to discuss the mind-effing films of Christopher Nolan. They talk about his beginnings, his first films, and the moment where he became the modern-day god of cinema. We have a Valentine's Day special on advertising his dead. Varun's guest is none other than his wife, Pooja Jauri, who is also CEO at The Glitch. They talk about how they balance their personal and professional lives, how she's made creative people work under structure, and a lot more. On Golgappa, Raj Sri Deshpande of Sacred Games fame talks to Tripti Kamkar about taking up challenging roles as an actor and her social work initiatives. And with that, let's get you on with your show. Welcome back to The Scene and the Unseen. I'm chatting with Vivek Kaul and uh, Kumar Anand. Uh, moving away from the immediate for just a moment, I prepared a bunch of questions I wanted to ask you guys. And uh, I'll start with you, Kumar. Uh, one economist all Indian policymakers should read. I was reading uh, this book again re- recently and I think uh, for them to understand and the simplicity of it, I think Milton Friedman, it would be free to choose Milton Friedman. And why? It's the simplicity with which he explains things. So I think even a policymaker, politician or a bureaucrat will be able to uh, grasp it. Uh, and he had the best rhetoric. So... What about you, Vivek? Mm, economics in one lesson, Henry Hazlitt. Mm. Which, of course, is based on Bastia's famous essay yeah. after which the show is named The Scene and the Unseen. The Scene and the Unseen. Yeah. yeah. Basically, uh, to understand, you know, the simple fact that there is uh, no free lunch in economics. Yeah, and the scene and unseen effects of everything. Uh, both answers after my um, own heart. And, of course, Friedman also has the excellent TV series Free to Choose, which yes. uh, two iterations of Along with his wife. Um, did he do it himself? I think he himself. Uh, not yeah. himself. And by the way, in one of the episodes, he has come to India also. Yeah, so know, he was in, in India thrice. That. And this was his second trip where he was shooting as part of Free to Choose TV. Yeah, but TV a great thinker, show. incredibly lucid. So just look up Milton Friedman's stuff on uh, uh, YouTube. is quite fantastic. And Henry Hazlitt, Economics in One Lesson, of course, which is based on the Frederick Bastia essay, uh, what that which is seen and that which is unseen, yes. which... Is just really bad translation. It could have been translated more simply. I don't think Vivek would have given it that title. Okay, my question was one economist all Indian policymakers should read. The next one was one book all India policymakers should read. But both of you actually named the book. So my next I question... I, I would like to add, I think uh, the the Indian uh, politicians and economics should also read this book called India Unbound by Gurcharandas. Yeah. Which is I, also had, I also had the book in mind. So Indian uh, policymakers should read... Uh, Soto's Mystery of Capital. Yeah. Understand no, the importance of nice informal, informal economy and how, uh, pro- how important yeah. the property rights are, which our good friend... Why uh, capitalism Mitla, doesn't work. Which is a great book, which is which is where I got the phrase dead capital from. And since then, I just... You know, it, it's like in that Manoj Knight Shyamalan film, the Bruce Willis says, I see dead people everywhere. <laughs> I look around and I see dead capital everywhere. Yeah. Uh, Soto would be very happy with me. All the unused and misused uh, lying assets. Yeah, now you're pushing your agenda. Stop it. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next question. Vivek, you go first for this one. Hmm. What is the one bad idea that all our policymakers share? I mean, uh, you know, I guess you would probably say that uh, one bad idea at the central government level is to keep launching new schemes. Because, you know, the Indian bureaucracy is like a funnel where it's very wide at the top. And when it comes to designing, planning, Talking about a new scheme, uh, they're pretty good about it. Like, I mean, look at PM Kisan, sounds very good. But the moment you need to execute it, uh, the lower bureaucracy is already very, very burdened. So like, uh, you know, in the 2016-17 economic survey, Arvind Subramaniam had said that there are 950 centrally sponsored schemes. So how is anyone supposed to keep uh, track of that? So launching one more scheme on top of that is is remarkably stupid. So take the uh, 
uh, you know, the pension scheme that's been launched for the informal sector. Now, it's not like India doesn't have pension schemes. You know, there are enough. There is public provident fund has been around since the late 60s. And it is available uh, to anyone and everyone. So, you know, you could have easily played around, you know, had an option in within that scheme where the same scheme could have been uh, implemented without, you know, uh, going, you know, starting Great optics, one so. more yeah. new scheme. But then, you know, it wouldn't have, you couldn't, uh, you know, build a narrative. Yeah. You know, in order to build a narrative, you always need uh, something new. So, Kumar? Uh, my answer is a, a bit similar to Vivek's. Uh, again, uh, when I was reading the uh, the budget speech, felt if uh, the common narrative there is uh, the government, uh, in this case the central government, is thinking only they can do things. So the number of new schemes which have the title Pradhan Mantri, you know, and the way it starts, you know, Pradhan Mantri, this Yojana, Pradhan Mantri, that Yojana. So the Maibab Sarkar, the notion, uh, the centralization. So for me, that one... Uh, bad idea which all policymakers want is centralization no matter what government there is they all pursue amassing greater and greater power at the center the reason i say this is there's a lot of merit in decentralization of, of course uh, you devolve power to the local government but somehow that agenda or the narrative is not there at all uh, from politicians if there are local politicians no one is saying that why not devolve power to the local governments we did uh, those um, 73rd and 74th amendment way back in 1992 it has been more than 25 years but they have not been implemented at least in the spirit so i would say it is uh, the continued centralization of uh, power in the hands of central government i uh, agree with you and to add to that i'll answer the question by saying that it's not just a centralization it's that the basic mindset that the state is a solution to the state is or holds a solution to all problems that status mindset i think everything that india has achieved has been achieved by Indian society and the Indians and despite the Indian state. And every time the state gets a little bit out of the way, we do mm-hmm. better like it did in 91. Yeah. And I think this is fundamentally something that we don't understand because we don't understand uh, spontaneous order and how societies uh, organize themselves and to fulfill their own needs uh, through markets, for example. Yeah. And and this is, in fact, the biggest cause of our agricultural crisis. I mean, something, you know, we've both written on many times that, uh, you know, the liberalization of 91 did not touch agriculture. And, and agriculture is paternalized and it's kept in the cycle of uh, dependency. And that's why we have this sort of... Uh, yeah. Massive. So any decision-making should happen closest to the people rather than further away. Yeah. Right. Now my next question is a related question which should be not so easy for both of you guys. What is the one good idea that all our policymakers share? Let's go with Kumar. I think as far as the rhetoric is concerned, so that may not be the case in actual policies or implementation, but almost every politician in the country, uh, while presenting the budget or in, you know, appearing on television or speeches, etc., do not ask for more taxes. So they do not ask for increasing of duties. And they talk about ease of doing business with at least some kind of reverence. You know, though they may not be the best solution. But the thing that how that low taxes is good, uh, lesser regulations is good. What happens in reality is a completely different matter. But at least, you know, no one is publicly opposing a low taxes, lower duties, or ease of doing business, I would say so that to, is... I, I have uh, two observations here. I mean, I mean, one observation obviously is that um, uh, some of the rhetoric has changed, but they don't follow out on the rhetoric. And from this, what follows is that this kind of rhetoric, the minimum government, maximum uh, governance kind of uh, rhetoric, is rhetoric that is appealing to a small section of the elites who also happen to be in media and so on, and is for them only. But they don't actually need to deliver on this because their constituency, which counts are the actual voting masses, and they don't really care about it. That's that's sort of one cynical uh, reaction to what you're saying. Yeah, so reality is different, yeah. Yeah, the other non-cynical reaction uh, would be that, yes, over time what we have seen is a shifting of what is called, what economists call the Overton window. The Overton window essentially is a definition of, uh, essentially indicates uh, the window of acceptable discourse on a linear scale, which is normally organized around freedom. And, and what happens is that over time that window shifts and things that were not acceptable 20 years ago may suddenly become acceptable today. For example, at a social level, I've seen the Overton window shift in my own lifetime, where if uh, 377 had been abolished in the 1980s, 
um, it would not have got uh, the kind of response it has today where today the response largely is that yes it needed to be abolished and exactly. of course there are widespread celebrations and all that though maybe that selection bias in play because i follow those circles but regardless of that i think in the 1980s it would not have been like that at all and a lot of people just wouldn't have gotten it and a lot of conservatives would have been more outspoken in the opposition of um, outlawing um, 377 and similarly in an economic sense i think there was a time where you know high taxes were considered good and nobody would be talking about low taxation and blah 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 and i think i agree with you that it's a positive sign that they're talking about it but my sense is they're talking about it for uh, uh, you know optical Optics. reasons for one small part of the intelligentsia uh, and they don't really uh, care about it at all but i hope i'm wrong and i hope the oberton <laughs> window keeps shifting because rhetoric does matter vivek i think you know one good thing that one could possibly say uh, you know is is the fact that uh, that you know once you know income taxes have sort of come down to a low level uh, they haven't really uh, gone up uh, again i mean even though you know there is too much fiddling around and you know we could do much better on our taxes front but largely our tax rates have stayed more or less the same so yeah we should say that we could possibly thank our politicians for that so right uh now my next question two sort of broad general questions and kumar you uh, you know when i shared these on whatsapp you said that these are sort of related and you'd like to take them together so i'll just ask them together which is that one we are facing this massive jobs crisis uh, which is evident and which is why i also say that our jobs and agricultural crisis are so big that it doesn't really matter who wins the next elections we are screwed mm-hmm. anyway there's not much we can do about them partly because none of the party shows the mindset that you need to solve these particular problems but Uh, to stop uh, rambling in this economic ramble episode my quick question to you guys is one what would you do to create jobs and two what would you do to fight poverty on a war footing vivek <laughs> vivek is amused by my questions no, why yeah. are you asking this you know, amit nothing will happen we know ha, what mean, would you do this is uh, you know this is like a prime time uh, debate on tv स्पेशली ऑन दी हिंदी चैनल आप बताइए आप होते तो क्या करते तो क्या करते अगर मैं इस देश का प्रधानमंत्री एक दिन के लिए होता तो I mean, what will they say? Yeah. But what do they like? Are, is the general sum? Yeah, is it like zero sum solutions, and is it like you know the standard T-shirt? No, I mean, so they will not. Or? I mean, there is there are no answers to these questions. Mm-hmm. So, no. So basically, you know, I think to answer your question seriously, the first uh, thing. So if you, if you look at the interim budget, you know, uh, the word jobs was used five times. Okay. And uh, and very vague and in very vague contexts. Okay. Uh, so the first thing to solve the jobs crisis is to acknowledge that it exists mm. which the current government uh, refuses to do okay what i find very very funny is that you know when you tell them there is a crisis they'll uh, point out uh, to uh, you know data points like uber and ola have been recruiting uh, you know drivers but when you tell them that cmi survey shows that 1.1 crore indians lost their jobs in 2018 then they'll come around and tell you but that's private and but uber ola is also private uh the you know the recent uh, nsso data which the business uh, standard published uh, i mean the, the way they went around trying to deny that data was very very disturbing because uh, you know a huge nsso is by far the largest survey that the government carries out i mean obviously uh, you know the census would be much bigger but census is not a survey and a lot of things that the nsso collects ultimately are you know go in as inputs into the uh, gdp calculation so if the nsso data is also not kosher then what is kosher so i mean the broad point is that the first thing that the government needs to do in order to solve the jobs crisis is to acknowledge that it exists okay that's the first thing the second thing that uh, so vivek will acknowledge that it exists and then we'll come to the no he's come to the second thing no no the first thing is yeah that's the first thing no if you don't acknowledge how will you uh how will you solve it uh, the second thing that has happened is and, and and you know a lot of people have talked about see basically how you know if you look at the formula if you look at the economic history uh, the the one formula which stands out 
for countries which have gone from being uh, developing countries to becoming developed countries is uh, through exports of uh, you know low end goods i mean it, it's it's happened to the us uk large parts of europe china you name a country and that sure, is how it has sure, played yeah, out yeah. Uh, that is something that is not happening in india and very very funnily our engineering goods exports uh, which are highly skilled exports seem to be doing much better than you know exports which are labor intensive so uh, you know given that there is a formula in place so you know any government i mean the next government has to work towards ensuring that you know people who want to export or even you know generally people who want to do business uh, transact exchange things are allowed to do so i mean it this might sound like again you know one of those utopian answers but uh, i i, I can object to the way you're using the word utopian because uh, the a utopia would refer to an end goal while mm-hmm. this is uh, while i would see this as referring to a direction yeah i mean uh, by, you know, uh, no where, what i mean by utopia here is that uh, you know because this is never going to happen is what what i mean it's so going to happen you, that we reach an ideal end state uh, but it can happen that we become better right so uh, so if you look at many indian states and i mean this is pretty well documented we have uh, you know uh, there's an economist called danny rodrick and he uses a term called premature non industrialization and this was uh, the term used uh, in in the economic survey a few years back by arvind subramanian as well so many indian states uh, have reached uh, you know a premature non industrialization where the industry in this state has simply stopped growing so the only indian state which has ever crossed uh, where industry has crossed 20% of the state's gdp is gujarat whereas a lot of other uh, you know states which you think are extremely industrialized states like maharashtra and tamil nadu achieved their high point in industry in the uh, late uh, 1980s okay uh, a state like uttar pradesh uh, has uh, you know you know basically uh, the level of industry in that state is 10 to 12% of uh, the gdp and it has stopped industrializing so you know unless these states you know, industrialize i mean uh, there is no way they can uh, go forward so if you look at you know uh, if you leave, leave states small states like goa which you know benefits but w- of- what would you do to uh, like th- this goes back to the classic thing that look okay economies grow they start off in agriculture then manufacturing then services and of course in our case you know cheap labor was uh, you know could have been a great strength we could have been where china is today but our manufacturing revolution simply never happened because of the state because of labor laws and this license raj and all of that it simply never happened and instead we had a bit of a services boom uh through the 90s uh, and all of thanks that thanks to because the state did not understand what is happening Ex- which is you why know? it was a, it, <laughs> it kind of so yeah. what do you do? do do you think that given the rise of automation across the world there is still scope for a manufacturing Very revolution difficult. or we've missed the bus i think we've missed the bus which is why uh, you know i've sort of become a, a sort of i mean i have a soft corner for an income support scheme i mean i would have not had it 5 years back Uh, but i think we've missed the the bus clearly because uh, i mean so you know people these days talk about the fact that china is sort of getting out of labor intensive manufacturing and you know there is our big uh, uh, opportunity but you know countries like vietnam and bangladesh have caught on to it uh, we haven't and i mean it's surprising you know uh, uh, bangladesh exports more textiles than india does i mean so uh, yeah so we we i think we've missed more or less missed the manufacturing and even the low end uh, uh, export which game. brings me back to your point 2 your point 1 is you'll acknowledge there's a jobs crisis point 2 is what will you do so see the thing <laughs> is no no i mean so see we're talking here you know this is like this, this is a very good this diagnosis is, i mean no, obviously not, i agree uh, with see, you this is not binary you know what mm. i'm trying to say is that you know once you acknowledge you'll do a few things it see it may not work out uh, to solve the problems through the length of breadth of you know india but it it will definitely Question benefit a few people somewhere right mm. so, so these these things are never binary right mm. i mean so, so i guess first thing is you acknowledge and then you do all the things that have been done in the past to ensure that uh, you know 
a lot of which the Modi government did promise in 2014 and absolutely did not deliver on, like reforming and, labor I mean, laws and, and, and so I, on. You know, the thing that I find funny is that, uh, so uh, Martin Wolf has a piece in the Financial Times on how India will grow despite its politics. And he's referred to uh, some World Bank report that's come out. I haven't read the report, but I've read the uh, Martin Wolf piece. And, you know, the, the kind of things that he points out, that these are the things that the Modi government has done, you know, stuff like GST and, and how it will help. But, you know, the way the GST has been implemented, instead of helping businesses, it's it's actually uh, killed them. Or he's talked about uh, the fact that uh, how the government is borrowing less, which is extremely stupid because uh, all the government has done is it, you know, the, the capital expenditure that the government used to carry out has now been simply moved off the books. So you have uh, Indian Railways borrowing through the Indian Railways Finance Corporation. Uh, you have uh, Food Corporation of India not being paid the amount that has to be paid. Or you have companies like uh, ONGC being forced to buy HPCL and in the process uh, sort of bailing out, uh, you know, borrowing to bail out the government. And debt which should have ended up on the books of the government has ended up on the books of ONGC. So, I mean, you know, if you look at the things that are being done, I don't think, uh, you know, I mean, one is the government does not do anything. That's fine. I mean, if the government that's does better. not do, that's better. But they're doing things and in the process, uh, screwing up uh, a lot of things. So. so I think I broadly agree with you. And what you're basically saying is, as, as Gurcharan Das said, India grows by night. And as I said a little while ago, that whatever India does is because of Indian society in spite of the Indian state. And what you would do is, number one, acknowledge that there's a jobs problem. And number two, put in whatever different small fixes you can, most of which will involve the government getting out of the way. Kumar, what's your take on this, besides acknowledging the problem? So, yeah, I, I think uh, my answer uh, to the questions uh, would be the same. Uh, I think uh, once you do the first, uh, do the second, uh, the, the problem of jobs gets taken care of in some ways. And I... If, you know, as a government, government should not be worrying about uh, creating jobs, you know, uh, that's not the job of the government uh, in any case. Uh, so what you do is you focus on uh, public goods, of course, don't worry too much about pro provision of private and goods. And you try to enable an environment uh, where the jobs come in the private sector. And what I mean so there is that you work, focus more on economic freedom, you know, not so much on uh, ease of doing business. So what has happened, uh, all the headlines in the last four or five years, uh, from the time the current government has come to power, you see a secular decline or increase, you know, betterment of the ranking of India on ease of doing business. And if you look into the disaggregation, it's the indicators which goes into, you know, building up the ease of doing business ranking itself, you realize those are things which could have been quick fixed. Uh, using some notification by the government and it takes care of, of course, Delhi and Mumbai. I mean, a lot has been written like about say, it. Wherever uh, there is a metric, it can be gamed. Yeah, so sort of. So those are things which are no, easy for the government to do. At least now it is being gamed. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's only being gamed. There's no actual... What Vivek said in the beginning, you know, it's about uh, all goes into building the narrative. Yeah. You know, so uh, most recent, I think, uh, if I remember correctly... Uh, I read a recent piece with a headline which said uh, Narendra Modi now wants to have India's ranking under 50 uh, probably next time around. Right now it's 77. Uh, while, but interestingly, if you look at index of economic freedom, out of 186 about country which gets ranked, India's ranking is uh, 130. And uh, that's yeah. pretty much the same as it's been for the yeah, last... Yeah, so that has not changed. Years, yeah. So a closer look at both the sub-indicators of ease of doing business and economic, uh, you know, index of economic freedom would tell you that all the sub-indicators for economic freedom are much harder to do because those would require institutional reforms. While, uh, you know, a notification could help you get uh, an improvement in the ranking for ease of doing business. So all you need to do is just make sure the institutions are right and take enforcement of contracts, those kind of things, property rights, uh, uh, you know, rule of law is working. While, uh, no, you know, step out of the way and that takes care of both, uh, you know, the problem, as you said, in poverty and, and, and jobs. And given the fact that there is no demand for good economics, given the fact that the political economy is so convoluted and all the parties seem to think in the same kind of statist way, are you guys then hopeful that uh, we can actually move in a better direction or is it just, uh, you know, sit back and let things unroll and hope that nothing disastrous like Demon happens again, but otherwise it's the same old, same old is going to go on like this? I may have been a bit cynical a few years ago. I'm not uh, as much anymore, I think. 
Why? Uh, which is lame because, because he's a corporate economist now. So uh, <laughs> no longer. No, I, I mean, used to be a corporate economist. Right? I'm, I'm not anymore. Yeah. Uh, the the thing is, it is very. It has become very difficult to differentiate between the options in front of a voter today. You know, they look almost all the same. No, so I so people used to say the BJP is Congress plus cow, cow. but even the Congress is Congress plus cow, cow now. Exactly. So BJP is equal to Congress. Yeah. You know. So as a voter, if uh, you know I'm in the marketplace, you know, and walking up, walking up to a polling booth, and I don't have see much of a difference, I think there would be some inter- entrepreneurial. It's a great opportunity for someone to come with a you know a different set of ideas and say, look, they are all the same, and it's so obvious that they are all the same. So uh, make your case. You know, I mean, we don't have a Liberal Party in India today. Swatantra Party was the last time, and they wrapped up in 1971-72. So. So you're uh, saying, okay, it's okay, the political marketplace is not giving the people what they need, but there is a gap in the marketplace and that's why you're hopeful. Yeah, I'm hopeful because it's mm. become starkly that they are all equal. So it has become mm. very difficult to distinguish. Uh, so then what's the point? You know, when if you're, it's not a single party, well, it's still a multi-party system, you know, so it will be, uh, e- I think... Uh, so if someone uh, makes a strong enough case and presents the right evidence, uh, probably there is uh, some hope there. I hope some young political entrepreneur or I hope some young person listening to this decides to become a political entrepreneur because of your inspiring words. And frankly, I, you said you were hopeful, but you didn't sound very hopeful to me. But <laughs> <laughs> Vivek, what's, what's your... So I just wanted to go back uh, to the budget. So, you know, again, I mean, uh, which is, you know, at the beginning, I said Piyush Goel did a fantastic uh, job of marketing the government. So, if you sort of, you know, heard him carefully, he talked about how low the inflation was, okay? Now, what he did talk about was that inflation was low because uh, food inflation uh, is in negative territory. So, basically, food uh, prices have been falling. The other thing he, he, he talked about was how bandwidth prices have fallen. Okay? Now, bandwidth prices have, what has the government got to do with it? Or he talked about the fact that how... Uh, uh, airline traffic has doubled and he attributed it to the fact that government has opened so many airports. These are the achievements of society for which the state takes No, I mean, so the government may have opened airports, but ultimately, you know, more and more people are actually, exactly. again, no, flying between the bigger cities where the airports were already there. It's just that the private entrepreneurs, you know, the Indigos and the Spice Jets of the world have many more flights now than used to be the case. So, uh, Okay, so the, so the point here is that, uh, you know, basically all Indian politicians now are uh, trying to create a narrative, okay? I think the one lesson that uh, politicians have learned from Narendra Modi uh, is, uh, I mean, whether it's the right one or the wrong one, we don't know, uh, is that, uh, you know, irrespective of what you do at the ground level, whether you deliver or you don't deliver, what is more important is to create and uh, spread the right narrative okay and uh, i think this is uh, you know this will play out uh, it's already playing out and it will play out even more uh, up until the next lok sabha but that's election that's an answer about the politics is there any hope for good which, which is what i'm coming to mm, so sorry. Uh, so basically you know there's this again you know i'll go back to hindi cinema there's this movie called Kamine, and in that, uh, the, the title song had, had, had a lovely line, Masoom sa kabutar nacha to mor nikla, I mean, gulzar rooted. So I think Indian politicians uh, are going exactly the opposite way, ki, you know, Masoom sa mor nacha to kabutar nikla. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think, I guess that the way, uh, you know, things are going currently, I mean, I'm really not, I mean, Anand might be uh, optimistic, but uh, I'm really not very optimistic. You know, all these, I mean, see, the thing is this, I mean, uh, ultimately, we may continue to grow at 6%. And that over a period of time, will uh, that will also pull out a lot of people out of poverty. But the entire talk about, you know, India growing at 8%, 9%, and, uh, you know, the demographic dividend coming good, and, you know, the growth story remaining strong. And all that is not going to uh, play out. And, you know, if you understand the basic laws of compounding, you know, a, a great, uh, if you grow at 8%, 9%, and if you grow at 6%, it makes a huge amount of difference over a longish period of time. And in fact, I, I think so, uh, Nitin Pai of the Takshashila Institution once calculated that... Uh, 1% of GDP growth in a year brings 2 million people out of poverty. 
So that becomes the opportunity sure, cost so of becomes, having a lower growth rate than you otherwise, and so, it's it's a it's a humanitarian. Uh, yeah. So crime. if you so if you grow at nine percent a year, your real income doubles in eight eight years. If you grow at six percent, your real income doubles in twelve years. So, so yes. I'm not very I'm not too optimistic. So. So it's, it's it's kind of time to uh, wind up because uh, we've just got five minutes left in this interview and therefore we can't take any of the reader questions. Sorry for that. We'll definitely take all of those and any more that you provide. Uh, next time, let's just end on a uh, note of hope. All of us sitting and, you know, to use your brilliant Bollywood a- analogy from Kamine, all of us are basically mm-hmm. looking at a kabutar and saying to ourselves, Ye dil mange more. Thank you, guys. <laughs> yeah. Ye dil mange more. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> In case you enjoyed listening to this episode, you can follow Vivek on Twitter at call underscore Vivek. You can follow Kumar at Kumar Anand one word. You can follow me at Amit Varma, A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A. And you can browse past episodes of The Scene and the Unseen on sceneunseen.in and thinkpragati.com. Thank you for listening. Filter coffee is a fascinating beverage. You need to pick the right beans, blend them in the right proportion, roast them to perfection, and slow brew at the right temperature to get the perfect cup. Which is exactly like great conversations as well. You need to track down the most interesting minds, get them into their zone, and settle down for an unhurried, unscripted chat. And coffee for me is always, always, always best enjoyed with friends. I'm Karthik Nagarajan, and do share my table as I meet some of the most interesting people I know and sit them down for a strong cup of coffee and an even stronger conversation. Join me every Wednesday for a freshly brewed episode. This is not Frappe. This is the Filter Coffee Podcast. Advertising is dead. Yep, you heard me right. Advertising is dead. We're all in the content business now. Let's not call it news, TV, radio, etc, etc. It's all content and we're in the middle of this weirdly exciting phase where all the borders and lines that have been drawn over decades has been swept away by this lovely thing called the internet. We're a show where we don't dwell on just the stuff that is now, but rather the wider stuff about advertising, media, content and the whole goddamn circus surrounding it. Tune in every Tuesday for our weekly unboxing of the mystery box we used to call advertising. I'm Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch, and this is my new podcast, Advertising is Dead. Advertising is Dead.